city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. What is a cult? Are all of them dangerous? Who joins cults and why? What are the psychological profiles of cult leaders? Or, for that matter, cult followers? How can members of their families and how can cult members themselves determine when the cult has turned dangerous? In many of these instances, suicide is the final result of cult members and the demise of these different cults, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. I'm joined with my co-host on a thread of evidence, Dr. Joni Johnston. And Joni is a fairly well-known forensic psychologist in the state of California. And she's one of my best experts on our forensic death investigations team. And we're going to have a wonderful and engaging conversation with Dr. Joni. How are you, young lady? I am absolutely fantastic and so looking forward to this topic. Well, so let's just get right into it. So what is a cult? Well, interestingly enough, the word cult in and of itself is pretty neutral. It just means a system of religious worship or ritual, and oftentimes it's surrounded by a particular figure. So, but that's not what we typically think about when we talk about the word cult. We typically think about the bad cults or the destructive cults. But yeah, the word itself is pretty neutral. And Joni, we've had we've had cults for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years, correct? Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, some of the major religions today started out as a cult, meaning there was a pretty small but very devoted and extreme belief system and a lot of followers. And then they became in the mainstream. And eventually these, quote, cults became religions. And, you know, going back to the Roman days, so we're talking, you know, going over, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, and we're talking about a figure by the name of Jesus Christ. And, right. the, and the Romans at the time, especially Pontius Pilate, uh, believed that maybe Jesus Christ was a cult leader. So they really didn't understand the whole issue of religion because the Romans believed in a number of gods and deities. And so when Jesus Christ came around, they sort of were looking at, at Jesus Christ as maybe being this cult leader and these other people were cult followers and a danger somehow to the Roman Empire. So how have we evolved from there? Well, there's so many points that you bring to that, Dr. Ron, because I heard a kind of a funny, interesting quote that said, you know, something we believe in as a religion, something we don't care about that much, we feel neutral about as a sect, and something we hate or are afraid of as a cult. So there is this subjective nature to, you know, our definition of a cult. So, I mean, how would we... How would we recognize, and of course now, you know, and I started out with Jesus Christ just to attract, you know, the attention of our, our listeners today and our forensic team members, but 
Now we recognize, of course, as we've had now for, for hundreds, if not you know, at least a thousand years or more, that you know, Christianity really is a purposeful, viable, uh, you know, stable religion that has done much good throughout the world. But how do we recognize a cult, and especially one that might not be a, a good uh, group or organization, from something that is good, like Christianity or any of the other religions? You know, how do we how do we draw that line, and how do we draw that distinction? I think the best way to do that is to look at the practices they use to recruit members and to keep members in the cult. So it's not so much a matter of what a person believes or what a group believes, because we know that cults can be religious, political, uh, environmental. Uh, you know, so it's really kind of a cult. On the one hand, is a group that is not in the mainstream, that has these certain beliefs that are kind of outside what we think of as kind of the norm, but a dangerous cult, we really can't define by what they believe. But how we, what we can do is define them by what they do to their members. So in other words, what you're saying, I think, Joni, is that I think one of the key uh, cues, so to speak, is to, is to look at behavior. Yes. So, you know, we take uh, take a look at another organization that grew up, and I, and I like to think that I'm a, a history buff, especially with World War II history, you know, the rise of Adolf Hitler. And really, if, you, if people go back and they really need to learn their history, it's such an important aspect uh, of everything uh, that, that surrounds us these days. And, you know, I'm going to go off on a tangent for a minute, but one of the problems that I find with people, at least in the United States in general, is that we don't do a very good job teaching history, uh, you know, any type of history, international here, uh, history, United States history, uh, all of these types of histories. And so we, we can readily identify people such as Adolf Hitler or someone like that, but we don't know much about the behavior because we haven't learned, you know, about, you know, these groups, you know, the, the National Socialist Party, whatever. But, you know, in my mind, when Adolf Hitler started out, and he started out as just one person, he rapidly gained a following. But if you take a look at the Nazi movement from its inception, it was very much cult-like. And when you take a look at behavior, that's a great example of it really is. And I think not only do we not pay enough attention to history and teaching that, but we also a lot of times don't teach our children, for example, about the psychology of influence. And you know what? And, and that's why you're here, Joni. <laughs> so, so, yeah, let's just get into that. And let's. why don't you educate us all on what that psychology and the behaviors and some of the things that we should be looking for in our determination as outsiders? What, you know, what is a cult and, and, and how do we know a good one from a bad one? So let's talk a little bit about what a dangerous cult is, because you are absolutely right that we, you, we can find examples of this in, throughout history and certainly today. So nobody joins a cult. And what I mean by that is nobody thinks they're joining a cult. What people join is a promise or they join something good. That's a lie. So at the beginning, 
all cults will what we call love bomb that recruit. So a person is oftentimes at a vulnerable point in his or her life. They've moved, they've gone through a divorce, uh, they've had a career change. They're kind of feeling lost. And oftentimes they know somebody at work, a family member. It's important to, to realize that 60% of cult members are recruited by friends or family. And so somebody goes, hey, um, Dr. Ron, you know, I've got this great group. It's fantastic. I'm learning so much. I'm evolving spiritually. Come to this group. The person, you know, you go to the group and you are absolutely bombed with love. You know, Joni, going back to your initial psychological training, let's go back into to college when, when you and I were both in college and we both had to take like psychology 101. You remember that? And I'm, you're, yes. so, you're so far past that now. But do you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You remember that and self-actualization and we all need certain things in order to, to thrive and one of those things is love and affection and things like that. Uh, to me, when I look at the cults and how they recruit these people, even you know from the sources that you're talking about, isn't love and affection something that we all need according to Maslow? And, and isn't this one of the, the things, the tools that they use to recruit people into these cults? Absolutely. And that is the important thing to remember, I think, because one of the questions I get all the time is, what is wrong with these people? Why would anybody join a cult? What's wrong? You know, is there a personality profile of someone who joins a cult? And scarily, the answer is no. As a matter of fact, if you look at the research, what you find is that two-thirds of individuals who join a cult are psychologically healthy individuals who get involved in a bad situation and they can't get out. The other one-third tends to be people who've had some anxiety or depression that's been situational. They've gone through some major life trauma or change and they're feeling lost and looking for something. Only five to six percent of individuals who get involved in a cult have serious psychological problems ahead of time. Well, you know, Joni, thank you so much for bringing this up. And this is why I love to bring you to the table to, to just educate all of us because right now you're educating me because I would have thought it was the other way around. I would have thought that people that join cults have got more baggage than a Samsonite factory, all right, and, and they have all sorts of internal problems and conflicts and everything like that. But what I'm hearing from you is that that's not the case. Actually, more people than not are actually psychologically healthy. That's amazing to me. It's amazing and it's scary and it's also something that nobody wants to believe. Um, when I talk to people, they'll, they'll always say, I would never get involved in a cult. I don't understand that. There is something wrong with these individuals. And what I'll tell them is, hey, go rent the Stanford Prison Experiment. I mean, one of the greatest things that, we, that social psychology has brought to us, and there is enormous data that tells us the power of the situation to influence our behavior. There are, I, I mean, there are just study after study, and yet we as individuals almost always attribute somebody's response or somebody's behavior to some personality characteristic or some flaw. 
and that's just not true in a lot of situations. Well, so what are the what are some of the, the psychological profile aspects of individuals? I know you've started on, on this road, but I'm going to keep you right on that road because I'm so interested in learning about the psychological profile of the majority. Generally is what I'm talking about. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions. But generally, tell us about this psychological profile of these people who join cults. Well, and that's the issue is there's not one. There is no psychological profile. The only thing that we do find consistently is that person is situationally vulnerable. In other words, again, this is a kid who's just gone to college. They're feeling kind of lost. They're feeling kind of homesick. This is the person who's gone through a divorce and they're feeling bad about themselves. Again, they're feeling lost. They're looking for answers. This is somebody who thinks that life is meaningless. They're looking for some kind of spiritual development. So it's not that there's a personality profile. It's there's a situational profile. I like that. I, I, I like that very much. Good point. And cult, you know, cults teach their members to look for these people, to spot these vulnerabilities. And then what they do is they bring the person in, and at least temporarily, they give them that love and affection and acceptance and direction that, like you said, we're all looking for. You know, that's that's so interesting because in, in the majority of the cults that I've studied, uh, and I've got two or three books in my library on, on cults, uh, I find that there isn't just one type of person. As a matter of fact, in, in all cults, at least the ones that I've taken a look at, there is a diversity uh, in race. There's a diversity uh, in economic strata. There's a diversity in age and in gender. Absolutely. I mean, there are just very few similarities among cult members other than this kind of situational vulnerability that we're talking about. Joni, you can keep... So, you know, Joni, what you're telling me is that this is situational and not psychological. So what are some of the aspects and, and what are some of the, the the traits of the recruiter and how they pull these people into the cult so that the person feels comfortable? Because that's the issue, right? You don't want to join something that's uncomfortable. You only join something that you feel brings something into your life that makes you feel better about yourself. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, a lot of times former cult members will report this kind of honeymoon or high that they get initially. And so the first step is oftentimes, again, getting the person involved, inviting them, and then absolutely giving that new recruit what they're looking for, whether that's some direction, uh, whether it's, uh, again, a lot of love, uh, listening to that person. So that's kind of the first step is just really focusing on this new recruit, having senior members spend time with that person, talk it up, and then they start doing some other things. There's a really fascinating social psychologist named Robert Cialdina, and he really has kind of outlines some of the strategies that people use. So for example, you mentioned earlier social isolation. A lot of times after this love bombing, they'll start getting this new recruit involved in more and more activities. And this does a couple of things. It, It indoctrinates this person about this new philosophy, this new way of life, but it also begins to separate them from their friends and from their family. And we all know that we tend to 
be like people around us. And so that's a huge strategy is separating that person. Um, The other thing they do is they begin to tell this person, for example, that this is a unique, a very special group. Uh, We also know when we look at propaganda and the psychology of influence that scarcity is something that we like. We like feeling like we're part of something unique. If something is hard to be a member of, we want to be in. So they really do prey on some of these natural inclinations that we all have. So now this person is spending more and more time with the group. Now this person is involved. They're getting a lot of teachings, a lot of direction. They're spending more and more time. They're spending less time with their family and with their friends who might provide some kind of a reality check, which of course is what the cult does not want that person to do. Um, And they're also, oh, they also have this, uh, this, strategy of we're the same we're like you so they emphasize any similarities between um, the recruit and existing cult members and it's a slow kind of gradual process where this person becomes to get more involved with the group develop more friendships in the group become more isolated from friends and family to be kind of indoctrinated that this is a special thing and of course the goal is always a positive one we're going to save the world we're going to spread enlightenment you yourself are going to become more spiritually evolved and so over a period of time and that's the hard thing because we end up uh, you know, hearing things from the media when things have been going on for so long and things have gone from, you know, the frog who's got his toe in the water to the frog that's been boiled. In other words, all these things have happened over time. And we're like, how could anybody get involved in it? But again, what we're not seeing is this whole process, this whole evolution of how this person who was psychologically healthy but situationally vulnerable gets recruited in and over a period of time, they're asked to do more and more things to commit more and more, and they find themselves getting deeper and deeper involved in it. Well, you know, that that's so interesting that you're saying that, and the analogy about the frog in the warm water that ends up getting boiled and not knowing that they're, you know, that they're feeling any pain or anything is, or that they're in trouble, I think more importantly, is, is a fascinating yet such an accurate analogy. You know, one of the things that, that I did uh, throughout my career is I was a street gang investigator, and so I dealt with uh, scores of street gangs and interviewed you know hundreds and hundreds of street gang members and i see so many parallels to the recruitment techniques of the cult with street gangs with the troubled young men and women uh you know why would you get involved in a violent street gang and some of the exact same things that you're talking about occur in the street and the prison gang environment now i know they're not cults but i think what is important for people to understand that are listening to our conversation today is that you can you don't have to be in a cult to have the same uh, psychological tricks being played on you just like you know, Adolf Hitler, or Joseph Stalin, or Mao Zedong, you know, these were all, in, in one way or another, these were cult leaders that became, you know, world figures 
and uh, the end result was the death of tens of millions of people. Joni, let's come back uh, to our conversation in a minute because I really want to talk with you about the psychological profile of the cult leaders, and then let's have a discussion about some cults that people would readily uh, understand and recognize. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and one of my favorite uh, forensic investigation team members, Dr. Joni Johnson, an eminent forensic psychologist on a threat of evidence on America Out Loud. The Out Loud perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Blitzer News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, Joni, let's discuss the profile of the cult leader. And I know there's going to be some exceptions here and there, but I think, at least in my mind, and, and, and unless you can educate me better, there seemed to me to be a particular profile of the person that becomes a cult leader and starts this whole process going. Can you help me out? You're, that's definitely true. I think when we look at cult leaders across the board, it's kind of amazing to see some of the similarities. And probably the most common and striking similarity that I've observed is what what I would call traumatic narcissism. So narcissism obviously gets a bad bad rap, and and rightfully so in some respects, because when it's taken to extreme, it's somebody who's incredibly self-absorbed and hypersensitive to any kind of criticism and totally focused on themselves. But we all need a certain amount of narcissism to be healthy. We have to look after ourselves to some extent. We talk about traumatic narcissism or even what I call malignant narcissism. It means that somebody oftentimes has this narcissism that is to the extent that they are completely focused on themselves and it's oftentimes a result of a really difficult or abusive upbringing. And so this person, so like Charles Manson, for example, had a horrendous childhood. His mom, I think at one point, tried to sell him for a six-pack of beer. So, and that's not uncommon when you look at some of the cult leaders that, that you have these malignant or horrible cults. And so what happens is they have this narcissism and they're charismatic. They have a, um, you know, they have a kind of a winning personality. They're able to kind of read people. They're able to make people feel like you're the only person in the room. And so that's the reason they get this, this influence to begin with. But the narcissism is really based on a lot of times this underlying anger and this underlying sense of entitlement. And it's kind of this underlying sense of, I don't really care about anybody but myself, and I'm going to use people in whatever way that I can to get my needs met. Do you find that these people are sort of Jekyll and Hyde personalities? Because I see that in in some of the most uh, infamous cult leaders. I do think you have that. I mean, a lot of times it's interesting because a lot of these cults that even become very destructive start out with a positive purpose. And I do think there have been cult leaders who started out with a mission or a purpose. Um, I know that Jim Jones, for example, was very involved and supportive of immigration 
um, and integration, excuse me, right. and in t- talking about, you know, blacks and whites working together and being part of the same family. And he attracted a lot of followers for that reason. And yet I think, you know, we all know that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so what happens is over time, not only does the cult evolve, but that leader, because of their own personality flaws and perhaps their traumatic history, becomes worse and worse over time. You know, that that's very interesting because when I first started my, my law enforcement career, I was up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and this is uh, in, in the early 70s, and Jim Jones, his uh, his church was on Geary Boulevard, which is a major uh, street. In, in San Francisco, just outside of the downtown area. And I remember going past that church on, on numerous occasions. And I personally met Jim Jones uh, when I was a, a rookie police officer. I was working with the Redwood City Police Department, again in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and he was getting sued in court and in San Mateo County from members of his cult that uh, were were based out of their families were based out of San Mateo County and the county courthouse was in Redwood City which was our department's jurisdiction and he came in this big bus uh, like a big like Greyhound bus that he had uh, rented or maybe they owned and he parked it in the red zone <laughs> this is how I met him he parked it in the red zone in front of the courthouse and he had you know like maybe 60 uh, 70 people on this bus coming out and I'll never forget him because he actually was a a short guy and he wore mirrored sunglasses so you could never see his eyes it was sort of a power trip and and I knew who he was and so I'm looking at him and basically trying to tell him hey buddy you got to move your bus but it was so interesting you could feel the aura about him and how subservient the people were to him. They actually looked at him. I could feel the 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 weird energy as if he was some sort of messiah. And believe me, all he had to do was look at people and get them to respond behaviorally to what he wanted to do. So I just, you know, thought that this was a very interesting and charismatic guy. Now, what I mean by this Jekyll and Hyde personality is that you've got to be a salesman if you're a cult leader and so you've got to have the good side you know the good face and the the caring and compassionate you know face like like you said you know sort of making that person feel like they're the only person in the room but then later there's another side to you which is the the evil and dangerous side you know you mentioned Charlie Manson that was a great example of a person who was extremely gregarious very charismatic but he have an evil side to him just like you know Jim Jones or some of the other people we're going to talk about absolutely and I think two parts to this discussion that would be interesting one is that you're right I think that probably that Jekyll and Hyde personality is always there to some extent and a lot of times what happens over time is the senior leaders in the cult will buffer the leader and the the cult members from seeing that so they'll work hard to kind of cover for that leader when that person's having these kind of whatever it is a temper tantrum uh, you know 
making bizarre or irrational claims, they'll try to buffer that person. But then the other part, of, as we said, is that a lot of times this Jekyll and Hyde becomes worse over time. Right. But I, I totally get the buffering part because that happens with all these cult leaders. It certainly, you know, happened uh, with Jim Jones. And, you know, and I really agree with uh, one of the things that you said. And again, uh, Jim Jones is, a, is an excellent example because when he started out, I mean, altruistically, uh, he had some good ideas. You know, he did have a very uh, balanced, racially balanced uh, group of people. He had a lot of people of color. Uh, you know, he had Hispanics. He had a lot of blacks. Uh, he had different people involved in his cult. So he was very uh, open to integration. I didn't have any, you know, racial uh at least from what I could tell, uh, not only meeting him and seeing the people that were associated with him on that one particular day, but then following the investigation in British Guiana of the mass suicide, and I think there were like over 900 people that killed themselves uh, with, uh, with cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, if, if people can remember that. Uh, but he did want to do good things, but as his power grew, it became very exploitive. Uh, one of the things that, that he did was that he got those people basically to sign over uh, their welfare uh, checks to him. Their uh, Social Security was a huge thing, as I remember, with Jim Jones. And especially, he had a lot of retired people, a lot of older people that were getting benefit checks and things like that, and they would just sign it right over to him. And that's what really got him a lot of his money to buy that acreage in British Guiana where he took everybody to. He actually removed everybody, if you remember, from the United States, from the church on Geary Boulevard, and transported them out of the United States and out of the jurisdiction of the United States. Yes, I think there was a, a lot of heat that he was experiencing. People were, family members were starting to complain and express concerns. And so he decides, to, yeah, you're right, to move everybody down to Guyana where there's absolutely no supervision or no control over him. But I think what you're, what you're saying is so, one of the most insidious parts of this is that everything is framed in the sense of you are special as a cult member and you are contributing to this higher purpose. And so, you know, what you and I might think of is like, why would anybody give all their money to this person or sell their car and give this person money it's all framed as part of this spiritual mission that you have the opportunity to be involved in and so the reality is so different than how we see it on the outside looking in well, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, of course, the I think the recruitment uh, issue and as far as, you know, taking the money is that, hey, we're going to all pool our money together and, uh, you know, we're going to have sort of this utopian environment where all of the money goes in, you know, it's, it's like a commune. Right. The, the same kind of, you know, example, sort of a communist, you know, commune where it's a collective where we are taking all of our money and all of our energy and we're bringing it into our church or we're bringing it into our group in order to uh, make everybody better. And then also for the purpose of recruiting other people, because don't forget, it's sort of like a Ponzi scheme. They have to keep recruiting new members in order to get more money into that group so that so that the group leader can do more stuff with it you're absolutely right as a matter of fact when you look at some of the really damaging or destructive cults they have two goals one is to recruit new members and the other is to get money 
and everything else is kind of window dressing. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, let's talk about, you know, some of the, the key things that the cult member wants to try to secure from the membership, because I think that it's, you know, part of that whole power trip that they have. Uh, and we're talking about the, the dangerous cults, of course. And so there are some themes that we see as people, as investigators, that take a look at cults. And I thought maybe you and I could have a conversation about that. You know, Dr. Ron, let's go back to the financial part of it, because it is just amazing the extreme nature of some of these things. I mean, not only will cult leaders and the cults talk people into signing over their social security checks, they'll encourage individuals to make their wills and leave all of their money to the cults. And, um, you know, family members oftentimes don't know what to do with this. I mean, they'll, they'll kind of think, oh, do, do I sue? Is there any legal recourse? And the answer to that is maybe and maybe not. Because here's the other side of that. If you're trying to get your family member out of a cult, you're probably reluctant to take that person to court to try to somehow protect their money because you're going to alienate that family member. So there's the whole kind of can of worms around money and cults. But here's another thing we haven't really talked about, and that is the sexual component that often comes up in cults. I mean, I'm sure you've been reading and following Nexium, which has been this huge self-improvement cult that's been in the news over the past several weeks. And we had um, actress Allison Mack, who just pled guilty. And here is a group that's saying we're a self-improvement group and we're a, we're a feminist self-improvement group. And they are literally branding these women with the initials of Keith Rainier, who's the cult leader, requiring these women to starve themselves basically so they'll be quote sexually attractive to Keith Rainier and he's having sex with all these women whenever he wants to you know that's absolutely incredible so what are people to do about things like that I mean what are some of the things that we really need to watch out for let's say a person you know gets into a cult and uh, and of course one of the big things that I see is very consistent with all the cults and uh, the dangerous cults and and the and the cult leaders is that they once they recruit them into the cult they isolate them and contain them uh, in an in an area afar from other people. They remove them from their familial and their their social support groups and, and their friends. And then once they've got them physically isolated and contained, they fill them full of the cult propaganda. They do. And in some respects, even more insidiously is they will prepare them for the natural reactions of family members. So one of the things when I get, I get lots of calls about my, my friend or my family members in a cult, what do I do? Or an attorney who says, you know, my friend, my client was in a cult and did A, B, and C. Is this a mitigator? Can we do something in court? And those are very, very kind of tricky questions. Um, but w- so what we they'll do is they'll say, you know, your, fr- your friends, Dr. Ron, are going to try to get you out of this cult. Why? Because they don't understand. They're not as spiritually evolved as you are. 
And so you have to be prepared that when you're with your family members, they may even call this a cult or they may say A, B, and C. So they will actually prepare the cult member for the natural panic that a lot of family members feel when they see this person they've loved for years and years acting like a completely different person. So one of the things that I always tell people is, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how angry you are, you cannot criticize that cult. You are not going to talk that person out of a cult and you are not going to love that person out of a cult. Your goal is going to be to keep the communication lines open with that person as much as you can. You may not be able to see that person that much. Write them, text them, email them. You need to not give that cult any reason or excuse to uh, put, put that put you on their bad list or stay away from list. So that's the first step. A second thing that a family member can do or a friend can do is educate yourself. Educate yourself about cults in general, about the persuas- persuasion techniques that they use. Educate yourself about this particular cult. What do they believe? How do they indoctrinate their members? One of the best resources for this, if you can possibly do it, is to talk to ex-cult members of this particular cult because they can help you understand what it's like for your friend or family member that's in this cult. And they can also give you some kind of strategies or tips. The other thing to do is to get support for yourself, meaning Talk to other parents or friends or siblings or whatever you are, what your relationship is with that cult member and get support because there are a few things that are scarier than seeing the personality of somebody that you love change. And I can't really overemphasize that, I don't think, is that one of the goals of a cult is to basically take you as a person suppress your natural personality and kind of develop almost like a pseudo personality that is that mimics the cult leader so what happens is as they begin to indoctrinate that person that personality of the person does change it doesn't mean that their old personality kind of goes away but it means that they start brainwashing in a way that person to think like the rest of the cult to mimic the cult leader and again that can be very very scary for family members and so it's important to to recognize educate yourself and also whenever you can to remind that person about their life pre-cult. So that might mean something as simple as saying, you know, Dr. Ron, I saw uh, our old friend Linda the other day and she really said she misses you. Or it's so-and-so's birthday in a couple of weeks. I know they'd love for you to come to their party. Again, they may say no, they may not be able to do that. But the more that you can remind that person of that they had a life outside of the cult, you're keeping that person aware of the fact that there is a life outside the cult. Because most cult members leave because they become disenchanted eventually with the cult. Well, boy, you know, I want to get into that, uh, you know, in our third segment. But let me just quickly ask you, because we've got about another minute here, uh, are, are there opportunities for family members to extract, forcibly extract, cult members that are family members? In other words, have you heard of incidents where family members actually kidnap children or close relatives that have been you know members of cults and actually in the 1970s and early 80s this was kind of standard practice and what happened is that cult 
members actually would sue their families for doing this. And so the pendulum has completely like swung the other way. Even individuals who used to kidnap family members and take them to this deprogramming room or have, have really kind of decided not to do that. So today you are not going to find people who are going to do that because they say that in some respects we're using the same techniques to deprogram that person that was used to program that person. And we're also infringing upon that person's you know, rights wow, to be that, involved in that. That is so interesting. Listen, you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest and co-host today, forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson, on a threat of evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Hey, we're back with Dr. Ron Martinelli and one of my favorite co-hosts uh, on a thread of evidence, Dr. Joni Johnston, our team's forensic psychologist. Hey, Joni, here's a key question for you. So how do we know, what's the transition key, if there is one, where the cult leader and the cult suddenly turn from helpful to dangerous and maybe even deadly. Well, I think whenever we see a cult begin to isolate its members and begin to ask them to make sacrifices financially, sexually, or whatever, to me, that is just the hallmark dangerous cult, period. A lot of times, these dangerous cults will have a contingency plan, the leader will. And how they'll do this is they'll start preparing their recruiter or their members with this unreasonable fear about the outside world. They'll talk about some impending catastrophe, that they're being persecuted, there be there's some kind of conspiracy again. And so what that does is it kind of communicates to the to the um, cult members that, hey, that this is not a safe place to be, and we may have to do something at some point, commit suicide, leave, or whatever. So they plant those seeds way in advance. And then they'll sometimes, I know that we, we have talked about Jim Jones. Um, I know that Jim Jones would have these suicide drills months ahead of time where he would all of a sudden say we're under attack and everybody would have to come to the central place and they would pretend like they're getting ready to, to you know, commit suicide in this act of allegiance. So they'll do this kind of indoctrination ahead of time. That's one of the scariest things to me about a, a really dangerous or destructive cult is they're pretty smart and they'll think through all of these objections or all of these things that people would normally not do. Who would kill themselves over over a leader? Who would kill their children over a leader? And they begin planning their members months in advance for the possibility of this happening. Boy, you know, let's talk about Jim Jones because again, that's a case I, I know quite a bit about. And if you remember, Joni, uh, and I talked about you know, the day when I was a, a young police officer and the, the lawsuit that he was going through. Well, 
Jim Jones, and of course his cult was referred to as the People's Temple. Anyway, he lost that lawsuit against cult members that had left the cult, and I think also the relatives had had sued uh, the People's Temple, and he lost that. That was a precipitating event to cause Jim Jones to take the People's Temple in mass out of San Francisco and San Mateo County and move it outside the jurisdiction and the extradition treaties uh, in uh, of, of British Guiana. As I recall at the time, I don't think British Guiana had an extradition treaty with the United States. But the most important thing was getting him, getting his people and getting him and their money outside of the jurisdiction of the United States so this could never happen again. Well, like you said, he did have those suicide drills. And back in 1978, members of his cult were secretly that wanted to leave the cult were secretly communicating with relatives in the 11th district which was San Mateo County and the Democratic congressman at the time his name was Leo Ryan very flamboyant guy he decided that he was going to take up the cause of his constituents and he got in an airplane uh, with a uh, at least one reporter from the San Francisco Examiner, if I recall. I don't remember the man's name. Uh, but then also his administrative as assistant, whose name was Jackie Spear. And they got in a, in a, in a twin-engine plane, and they managed to fly down to British Guiana. There was a landing strip. Uh, at uh, Jonestown, which is where the People's Temple compound ended up. And they went down there to go check on the status uh, and the safety and security of his constituents and talk those people into leaving. And that was the precipitating event that created an ambush for Leo Ryan. He was shot and killed by the Jonestown security force on order of Jim Jones. Jackie Spear was wounded. The uh, the Examiner uh, newspaper reporter was wounded. I believe the people that wanted to leave were killed with Ryan. And then Spear and her security guard managed to get away. The plane took off. Jones totally panicked because now he's killed a congressman. And by the way, I think this is still factual. Leo Ryan was is the was the first and only congressperson to ever be uh, killed in the line of duty uh, serving for the United States Congress. Anyway, uh, Jones came back and. Uh, basically convinced everybody to commit suicide and he committed suicide. I think 920 people, uh, which is the largest ever, committed mass suicide. So I think that's a great example of what you're talking about. It absolutely is. And you are right that, that the reality is a lot of times when you have a mass suicide like this, it really is because the leader is feeling some squeeze. They see the writing on the end of the wall and it kind of goes back to that malignant narcissism we talked about earlier. It's, you know, in, a, in an abusive relationship, and I'm sure with your career, you've come across the, you know, if I can't have you, nobody else will. Oh, sure. In a relationship. It's almost the same way in a cult. When you have this dangerous or destructive leader, they start feeling the walls closing in. And, and again, they prepared their members way ahead of time. 
uh, about the fact that, again, you know, this is an evil world, an unsafe world. People are conspiring against us. So they've planted these seeds ahead of time. But the absolute trigger almost always is not some real catastrophe. It's the fact that the law or people are closing in on this leader. And this leader would rather have everybody die, everybody go, than the thought of him going to jail by himself and everybody else being able to go on with their life. Well, you know, Joni, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation where you talked about also a precipitating event could be some sort of uh, pending catastrophic uh, event that, that's coming up where the cult leader and, and their followers are so intensely uh, paranoid that that can create a, a mass suicide event. And I want to call your attention, I know you're in San Diego County, I want to call your attention to the Heaven's Gate cult uh, out of Rancho Santa Fe uh, a number of years ago. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes, it was a cult called Heaven's Gate, as you mentioned, and Matt, um, Apple White was the name of the leader there, and he developed this. It was an extraterrestrial kind of religious cult, and it had some pretty unusual beliefs um, about, you know, the, the members of the cult were going to be ascended into this spaceship, and he somehow in his head tied it to this particular comet, the Hellbop comet that, comet that was coming, and he convinced 39 individuals, basically, that now was the time that we need to kill ourselves because we're not really dying, right? We're not really dying. We are just going to be transported onto this spaceship. You know, that that's so interesting because that makes it so easy for the people, right? If they think that this is just going to be a transformation, uh, they're not really going to die. They're, they're going to just transform into another being or another, you know, entity. Uh, that sort of assuages them and, and convinces them that, hey, really, you know, this death is not permanent. You're going to live on only in another being or another character. That's really true. And one of the most kind of interesting thing for me as a psychologist over the years is just realizing that, you know, a belief system can be bizarre or could be strange. But if you look at the person's behavior inside of that belief system, it kind of makes sense. And so you're right. Here's somebody who's convinced a group of people that this we have this is the time. This comet is coming and that we are going to be transported into a better place, starting a new world, you know, et cetera, et cetera. People aren't going to just kill themselves thinking that nothing, right? That it's just over, or because somebody says, I want you to. All of these things are always packaged as we are going to a better place. Or we're being so persecuted that, that we need to, you know, to kill ourselves as some kind of message to the world, that this world is evil or whatever. But it's always framed in a very positive way. So how does how did that type of uh, behavior and that type of philosophy and that planning, how did that, uh, or did it, uh, transfer over to David Koresh, if you remember, in Waco, Texas? Well, yeah, I want you to tell us, if you don't mind, Dr. Rod, about your experience with that, because I know that, again, it became this kind of standoff where the law was closing in. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? That happened That happened during the uh, Clinton administration, and uh, Janet Reno was our uh, attorney general at the time. Uh, the David Koresh group, the cult, was in a fortified compound located in Waco, Texas, actually, uh, just, uh, you know, like two hours away from uh, where I live. And 
they had isolated and contained themselves as a you know sort of pseudo religious organization. David Koresh, very charismatic uh, leader, had been very much involved with the things that were happening inside Waco, Texas. You know, the city council issues and things like that had been uh, politically active, but basically took his cult group. And I don't remember the numbers, but I think they were around 38 to, to 40 people, uh, women, men, and children, small children. And uh, they were stockpiling weapons. And at the time, uh, the information got out to BATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is under the umbrella of uh, the Department of Justice. And so BATF got enough information uh, from uh, confidential informants uh, inside the uh, Koresh compound and got enough to uh, obtain a search warrant for the confiscation of weapons. I think one of the key weapons that they were looking for was a 50 caliber uh, military machine gun, which is against the law to have unless you have a, a class three or class four firearms license, which he didn't have. And so they decided to go over there and do a giant raid. It was a huge mistake because they had not done any real intelligence. And as a matter of fact, Koresh had people uh, on outer perimeter, you know, if I can talk tactically for a minute, outer perimeter surveillance. And I thought maybe one of them was a post, a United States Post Office employee, and he saw the caravan of BATF uh, federal officers coming and called ahead to the Koresh compound and they were waiting for those guys and there was a major firefight and we lost uh, several federal officers at that time and then I think Joni you remember that the compound was surrounded by more federal officers Texas Rangers but mostly the feds and the Federal Bureau of Investigation this was a protracted sort of siege you know day and night if you remember uh you as a forensic psychologist and me with my psychology background you and me i know we'd be on the same sheet of music that this was a horrible way to do this you remember Joni? they played the the crazy uh, uh you know like acdc hard rock uh, music 24 7 at night do you remember that when they did that and lit up the compound with searchlights and everything Yes. And, and again, if we think of the, the fact that almost always part of this religious cult is to create this kind of paranoia and this kind of sense that the world is conspiring against us. Um, one of the challenges for law enforcement, I'm sure, and you can speak to this more than, than I can, is just the fact that these cult leaders in that situation, they have nothing to lose. And they yeah, know that. Absolutely right. And it fed, in my professional estimation, it fed into the paranoia. It just exacerbated it. And, you know, I think as we know now, uh, David Koresh and his followers had made a suicide pact. And like you said, just like with Jim Jones and Jonestown and the People's Temple, uh, they had practiced, uh, you know, going out all together. Well, a lot of the people didn't want to do it, especially the parents of small children, from what we understand. And there were listening devices that had been planted by, by the FBI covertly there. So they kind of had an idea what was going on. But in the end, David Koresh and his senior members of his cult uh, basically uh, threw gasoline all around the compound and burned that compound to the ground and killed everybody inside. It was a, just an absolute tragedy. Yeah, it really was. And actually, we were talking about Jim Jones a lot during the show, and the same thing happened there. 
the few people who escaped, and there were some people who escaped, um, they talked about the fact that not everybody was voluntary in terms of drinking the Kool-Aid. Right. That there were people who were forced to do that. So at, at that point, it was kind of the point of no return, I think. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that you've been uh, kind enough to talk about is is one of the cues or one of the things that people have to watch out for uh, inside these cults. And that is once the leader starts taking steps to uh, enhance the paranoia of, of the followers, and then they specifically start making plans for mass suicide, man, that's the time to, to get out of Dodge. It really, really is. And, and, and also from a bigger picture, if there was one message I would want people to know from this show is that if any group... I don't care what kind of group they are. If they are trying to isolate you or separate you from your friends and family, that to me is not, that's a dangerous cult right there. That's a dangerous group because you think about it. We all have our own spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, and yet it's extremely rare for anybody to convince us that we need to somehow forget our past give our family and loved members away. That's just not something, that's a huge red flag, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, kind of going back to my old days of Maslow, and, and that is, you know, we all need certain things to make transitions in our lives, whether it's from adolescence to adulthood, or you're already an adult and you're becoming a senior citizen. You know, we all want to be loved. We all want to be cared for. Uh, we all want to know that we make a difference in people's lives, and, uh, uh, and we all want to have a spirituality, and we all want to experience some level of self-actualization. But the thing to remember is you don't need a cult or a cult leader to bring that to you. All you need to do is have a good support group be as centered as you can and hey look we all have problems you know Joni I'm I'm off to say that everyone you meet every single day is battling something that we know nothing about but there are uh, both internal and external support systems for all of us but we just have to open our eyes and know that there's there and know that there are people like Dr. Joni Johnson out there and board certified forensic psychologist and psychiatrist that can help us through that process you know and speaking of Dr. Joni Johnson, I just want to congratulate you for now becoming a weekly columnist on America Out Loud. And I've been reading your articles, Joni, and they're just fascinating. So for our listeners on America Out Loud, if you haven't read Dr. Joni Johnston's columns, please get in there and do that. Get on the website, look for bloggers, and look for talkers, and just scroll down, and you'll find Dr. Joni Johnson, and please start reading her articles. And Joni, how do people get a hold of you in your private practice? Because I know that you're just as busy as a one-handed paper hanger in a windstorm. How do people get a hold of you? Well, thanks for that plug, first of all, Dr. Ron. I really appreciate it. And probably the easiest way to get a hold of me, there are two ways. One is my website, which is drjoniejohnston.com. And then I also write a blog for psychology today called The Human Equation. And there are lots of other articles on there, and there's also links directly to my website or to me personally. 
And you know, Joni, again, congratulations, and I personally want to thank you for being such a valued member on our forensic investigations team. You just bring so much to the table. And that's pretty much about all the time we have for this discussion today. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and one of my favorite co-hosts, Dr. Joni Johnston, board-certified forensic psychologist. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud.